The Gerontological Society of America, meaningful lives as we age. Welcome to Science and Storytelling, a GSA 75th anniversary podcast on aging. I'm Hanamori Scablo, doctoral student in human development and family science at the University of Missouri in Columbia. And I am Rita Hu, doctoral candidate in social work and psychology at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor. Today, we will be discussing productive engagement for older adults with Dr. Nancy Morahal, the director of Harvey A. Friedman Center for Aging. In the face of population aging, she wants to find ways to shape social policies and programs to optimally engage the growing human capital of the older population. This episode is inspired by Dr. Moro Howe and Dr. Ernest Gonzalez's GSA Anniversary Spotlight article, Recovering from Coronavirus Disease 2019, Resisting Ageism and Recommitting to a Productive Aging Perspective. We'd like to start by hearing about your path and what brought you to this area of research. So you're an expert in the study of productive and civil engagement in later life, including how older adults participate in work, volunteering, and caregiving. And so what's the story behind why you chose to focus on productive aging? Thank you. I was trained and am trained as a genealogical social worker. I practiced in the field of mental health more than aging specifically. When I was trained as a social worker, it was when I went to the University of California at Berkeley to pursue my PhD that I really decided I wanted to focus on gerontological social work because of the demographics. As a gerontological social worker, we always focused on older adults that needed something that weren't in the best of physical or cognitive or resource you know, shape. So I became very much immersed in studying discharge planning and community-based services, which I loved and which remained critically important. But I actually started thinking more about the biases that that created in social workers. That, that was my picture of later life. When in fact, I knew that it wasn't, but I just wasn't not exposed to that other literatures and other um, most of the reality of, of later life, which are older adults that are fit and functional and making contribution. So it was a bit of a preservation of my own sort of mental health, but I, I hated to be just pushing forward those traditional visions, you know, of what later life is. So about that time, Bob Butler was really on the scene. He had introduced the concept of productive aging in the mid 80s. I wasn't until the mid-90s that I figured out that I would like to try to take a different focus. So I jumped on uh, his writing and his bandwagon that said we needed to shift our focus away from dependence to contribution. That both are true, um, but that we have totally overlooked contribution of older adults and what they contribute to families and society. So doctoral students and I here and another colleague, Mike Shredden, uh, jumped on board and organized a conference and produced a book. And, and that really got me on this path. It's encouraging because I think that there is sometimes an idea that we have to have it all mapped out much earlier. And so it's nice to hear somebody who's so established in the field say, I was really interested in one concept and then I was well into my training when I found a passion for another concept. Right, right. Very, very true. I was dedicated to social work primarily, 
generally to mental health services when I was practicing. And then it wasn't until my doctoral work that I really focused down on uh, later life, older adults. And then I focused on something totally different in my first research and writing and then have transitioned to productive engagement. In fact, there's another transition happening a bit right now. And that is we talk about older adults as workers, as volunteers, as caregivers, and how the value of their contribution needs to be recognized by facilitating that engagement through programs and policies, which we can talk about later. But one of the biggest challenges is age segregation, which is based on age discrimination and age bias. So I've really started to focuses much on age discrimination and fighting ageism as the thing that I would have been asked to talk about more recently than productive aging per se. So another transition, you know, at this late in my career, I've taken up working with a global organization called Age Friendly University Network. And there's countries across the globe, mostly in the U.S. and Western Europe, that are focusing on age inclusivity and age diversity in higher education. I never really focused on higher education as a part of my productive aging thing. So now I'm really working on this age-friendly university network and movement and doing some research in that area. So again, you, it is the beauty of scholarly work, the evolutions that you go through. It's always nice to connect with other GSA members and hear about what brought them to this work. You know, there is no uniform path as you're speaking to. And, and of course, gerontology itself is such a broad and interdisciplinary field. And in general, I find that GSA provides an opportunity for connection with other people who are also dedicated to improving the lives of older adults. And I know that GSA's scientific, our annual scientific meeting has been a source of inspiration and motivation for me as an early career researcher. And I'm curious how GSA has played a role in the trajectory of your career. It has played a very important role. It was when I was a doctoral student at Berkeley that I went to my first conference. And, you know, I bet I've been in there every year. It is clearly the highlight of my job. The highlight of my year is going to the annual conference. But what that represents to me is staying current on what's going on. I tell my students, don't go to every session on caregiving that you're studying, go to the big presentations, go to the award winners, go to the speakers, because you want to know what's happening in the field. What are people talking about? Does so much for me as an educator to go listen to something I don't know about, but it's sort of hot right then. So it serves that purpose of me of keeping me sort of aware of broader issues in the whole field. It connects me to new people who are doing similar work. And that's, in fact, how I sort of get pulled in a little bit more of a direction, you know, than another direction. So I'll be meeting up with people that are working in the age-friendly university movement this coming November. I am not exaggerating when I tell you the highlight of my professional life is meeting with WashU alums and friends of WashU over the years at GSA. It started with me taking five people out to dinner. And now every year, it's kind of hard, but I organize at least a happy hour, a dinner or something. And, you know, there's probably 40 or 50 of us, but it's just a homecoming, you know, and it's just 
everybody is in aging and mostly social work, not always. So it's just one of the highlights. So it's kind of meet new friends, but keep the old slogan for me at GSA. So very important. But the organization more in general, beyond the annual conference, is just something that I identify with very strongly for the publications, for the interest groups, for now the online resources. I love the organization and being involved with it. And I get to be involved now with the Reframing Aging Initiative, as well as GSA does have an age-friendly university initiative as well. Would you mind speaking a bit to the basic tenets of the Reframing Aging Initiative for folks who may not be familiar? Sure. So GSA is leading an effort with other aging organizations. Together, they have organized and commissioned the work from Frameworks Institute. There are experts in understanding public dialogue and trying to shape it. So they produced work for us about how to try to change the public discourse around aging from what I describe as the age's decline, age drain, age's problem uh, that, that totally you know, fills all of our thinking and talking about aging. And it's how to talk about aging differently, not to deny realities, you know, not to say we don't age and that age doesn't bring with us some hard things, but to say, how can we think about it differently so that we can act differently about it? We can act, we can promote programs and policies and in ways that, and narratives that can help reduce age discrimination and age bias, really. So right now I'm involved with some of the GSA staff. We do reframing trainings. And in it, the simplest thing, it's about the stories you tell, how you tell a story. So for example, we say, please don't start with the silver tsunami and the demographic crisis. That sets people up for a real fatalistic, nothing to do, this must be horrible, you know, kind of, of reaction. Or let's use person-centered language. Let's try to say older, older people, older persons, people over the age of 85, and just try to get our students and ourselves to stop saying the elderly. Or, you know, just, just language matters. So as simple as language matters to bigger ideas of how you tell a story matter of how, what the public hears and how they're going to change their attitudes about aging. Great. Well, thank you for sharing your stories and painting a trajectory um, and with a lot of interesting stories there. Well, now we will kind of shift focus more to your research in the field of gerontology. And just to help our listeners who have you know, not read the, art, the spotlight articles, can you please just talk more about what's the relationship between, you know, ageism or age stereotypes and productive aging? Because in the title of the article, you're saying we need to recommit to productive aging perspective. Yes, it's interesting. My work on productive engagement has been empirical. We collect data on mostly older volunteers, older caregivers, we analyze data about work, work, older workers, et cetera. But it has become as much an advocacy agenda. So how, that's why the Reframing Aging Initiative has been important to me, important to me how to present you know, information so that it can confront age bias and have people 
thinking differently. So we've really taken sort of advocacy work in regards to the pandemic because the pandemic has spotlighted ageism so much. It didn't create it. It has just exposed it. As any crisis exposes a lot of our isms, it's also exposed the, the ingrained racism and all the, the problems of our society seem to be worse in the face of a crisis. And that included ageism and age discrimination. So we've tried to highlight how age-based criteria are not the way to go when we think about dealing and recovering from the pandemic. We, we have made the point that it's a fact. Older adults do worse with this virus. Some of it's primary aging. Our immune system is weakens as we age. Some of it is multiple chronic conditions that are more common in older bodies. Some of it is older adults are more likely to live in residential settings. So there's these things that in fact make us more vulnerable to the virus. But in this article, Ernest and I argue, but that perspective is just part of the reality. And that's really what we based our productive aging argument on, too. Older adults do need, some older adults do need assistance. Some older adults need, cannot work because of cognitive impairment. But that's a, that's a part of the story and a small part of the story. There's a whole other story. So the whole other story in regards to the pandemic we've put forth is older adults are essential workers. So we've been able to highlight older adults as workers, as volunteers, as caregivers, as custodial grandparents. So it really does fit with our productive aging perspective of highlighting the roles and contributions. And these have really been overshadowed and threatened when we think about older adults needing to be protected, needing to be isolated, needing to be, one article said, lock down seniors so that we can economically recover. So it, the, the, what's happened in the pandemic has really highlighted the way we've been thinking about productive aging and giving us a chance to say two things that are going on that are the most problematic is we're thinking about the elderly are at higher risk for COVID. The elderly need to be uh, pr protected. So it's getting at the fact that there's this monolithic group of folks that need protection and assistance. When in fact, as gerontologists, we are always fighting that argument that that is so not true. The, the heterogeneity of the population. So we're highlighting how many people work, how many people volunteer, how many people caregive. And they've done that throughout the pandemic. And we're worried that when we are coming out of this now, that that protective, that segregation notion, that protection segregating age-based reactions will set us back in the progress we've made towards age integration, towards age, towards getting away from age segregation and getting, so we're asking people to let's get back on some ideas that have been around a while, but we're afraid they're set back in the pandemic legislation, programs, working on attitudes, et cetera point out two points that you mentioned here that are very interesting i think let's go back to the concept of ageism or because there there we have been kind of 
throwing around a lot of terms here, age segregation, ageism, or stereotypes, or attitude. Do you mind kind of, you know, maybe give an overarching definition or description of ageism? Sure. Ageism, there's a lot of different definitions, but basically ageism is treating a certain group a certain way because of chronological age. And generally we think in a negative way, in a biased way, and generally we think about it in for old, for older age. But we know ageism exists at young at across all ages. And the um we can't just act like ageism affects older people. It doesn't, but that's what we focus on. So it's treating people differently and more negatively because of their older age. But we've talked about explicit ageism, implicit ageism, compassionate ageism, all these different types of ageism. I think that we need to realize there's two ways. There's explicit ageism where there's age discrimination. Somebody is not hired because of their age, which still happens all the time. So it's kind of objective and observable. There's implicit bias where we just think and act and respond differently towards older adults. Um, it's not in our awareness as much. And that is pervasive in all of us. And we talk about how older adults are implicitly biased themselves. From the day we're born, you know, we've got messages about age and older. And so now, even as I am an older adult, I'm 69, I see that in my colleagues, I see that in myself. I can see how we've internalized those messages and I can see how that's harmful. So the research on ageism shows us that explicit objective ageism hurts older adults. It hurts them in the medical care they get, in the jobs, and in the job market, that it hurts because of the consequences of it. And we know that the internalized ageism hurts all of us in that it reduces our self our agency, our self-confidence, kind of self-fulfilling prophecy kind of notion at the simplest level. So there's a whole world of, of knowledge about ageism that I'm just getting exposed to. Right. Yeah. Ageism um, is a very complex process as other isms. And so now let's also go back to the idea of the relationship with ageism, productive aging or productive engagement. So what are some examples of how, you know, research findings, either your own or in the field, really translate into the real world? How do these findings generate new programs or practices or um, improve policies if you can elaborate more on that because you mentioned again and again what you're doing is advocacy work we're advocating and uh, so we would love to hear any examples or stories there in the area of working probably most of the age discrimination work does come in the area of working because we know that older adults still although it's illegal uh, the Age Discrimination Act, Act prevents pe from people of anybody over the age of 40 to be treated differently in terms of training, hiring, advancement, etc. But we know it still abounds in the workplace. And one of the things we know empirically that we're going to be keeping track of is that 
when older adults step out of the workforce, they have a much harder time getting in. And we can document the amount of time twice as long, you know, to re-enter the workforce. And that's going to happen now with the pandemic. In 2008, older adults who lost jobs in the Great Recession were much slower to re-enter. And some just then say, well, I'm going to retire. You know, they don't re-enter. They use that opportunity. They use this to say, I guess I won't try to get back into the workforce. So we know that's going to happen again with this pandemic. Older older workers have done poorly in this pandemic. One, because they've, they've stepped away for self-care and employers have been relieved, right, when the older worker says, I'm not going to come back or take sabbatical or step away. But coming back in now, there's going to be the attitude of higher risk still. And just the fact, pandemic or no, age discrimination seems to work almost the strongest right at the re-entry of trying to get a job rather than once you're there, the effects of age discrimination are still there, but it's just more powerful to re-enter. So we're going to have that now in the workforce. And we talk about solutions still continuing to be in the area of legislation where people are trying to strengthen the age discrimination, the aspects of that law that will better protect older workers, but also talking about making workplaces safer. And that's just not for older adults, that's for everybody. There's a lot of people who are at increased risk for the virus. So how can workplaces be safe? How can they be flexible? How can we take advantage of when we can work remotely? That's going to help older adults. It's going to help everybody. But that's an example of the work ahead, both empirical and advocacy you know, around older adults as workers. Right. And I think it would be great if you can also talk about the volunteering and the caregiving aspect. Um, yeah. As you mentioned, the you know they older adults are essential workers and volunteering. And right. Yes. So just personally, I know that I volunteer for Meals on Wheels, and also uh, I'm involved in a project in rural Michigan that's um, interviewing volunteering uh, for aging in place agencies and it's very clear that they're all those volunteers are providing essential services yeah, delivering right. groceries delivering meals yeah. and so they are essential workers but it's true that they're all heavily impacted by the pandemic and it would be great if you can elaborate more on the volunteer and the caregiving aspect as yeah, well. yeah i'll tell you a little bit about some work we're doing right now we've always argued the productive aging kind of argument is that volunteering is unpaid work and it's very important work and older adults do a lot of it. Now they don't do as much as they could because as when we separate from the workplace more formally, when we separate from educational institutions, we're not asked to volunteer as much. We're not in organizations that do volunteer stuff. So we can get disconnected from the volunteer world and we have evidence that older adults are less likely to be asked to volunteer because they're not down the hall, you know, or in the school. So when they do volunteer, they put in more time. And older adults generally are not, not volunteering because of health. It's because they don't care about a fit for an opportunity or some sort of a, 
uh, of another barrier. So we know that there's lots of room to increase volunteerism, and we know that volunteering is generally very health-producing for people, socially, cognitively, physically health-producing. So when the pandemic hit, older adults were some of the first to step out of volunteer roles in face of increased risk um, of the virus. And so sometimes that was the most that was their most meaningful and contributory role that they've lost. So we were real worried about stopping volunteering. Many agencies tried to help people go to online volunteering. And we're still learning about that. But there's a program that I do evaluation for and involved with. It's a tutoring program, Oasis Intergenerational Tutoring. And older People are recruited, trained, supported, go into elementary schools, help teachers by working with kids, generally around reading. Well, there was no way there were the schools were closed, right? And even when schools started to reopening, they weren't interested in any volunteers coming into the program. So that program was a hard stop physically. So the agency, Oasis, developed an online tutoring program and got people tutoring online. You know, we thought, whoa, there's some good things about that. I can, you could, I can tutor a, a kid in Mississippi if there's shorter tutors there. So the geography broke down, the transportation issues broke down. But the digital divide is huge, not just, just between generations within any age group. So we lost a lot of volunteers who weren't comfortable with the technology yet, although most jumped on board fast. There's a group you lose. So we're trying to figure out now how to take the best of online volunteering that we learned. We're evaluating the program at the end of this year where they've tutored these kids online. Did it help the kids? How was their experience in terms of the benefits we know volunteering brings? So we have a chance to compare the effects of online volunteering, specifically tutoring, to not, and who we lost and who we gained and how to go forward with the best of that model as we're able to also reintegrate back into physically being in schools. So that's some of the research we're doing now. And I think it represents a lot of the research that's going to be happening is what are the consequences of what we've had to do in all of our shifting things around and what should be preserved. And that's really true in what we're learning about volunteerism. So that's volunteering. Caregiving, older adults as caregivers hasn't been as spotlighted as much as just caregivers in this pandemic and of any age and how hard it's been when home care agencies for adult day centers shut down, when people were afraid for personal care aides to come in and personal care aides were afraid to go in. So there was a lot about the burden on caregivers of the pandemic. And of course, we all know what happened in our heavy duty-est of care settings, nursing homes. So there's so much that we're going forward to learn here about how to how to be in better shape when this happens again. But caregivers, this for us, from our productive aging perspective, we've always said caregiving, unlike volunteering and working, it's done outside of formal organizations mostly. So it's more invisible. It's harder to have a policy and a program that affects everybody as much as when you work for a formal organization. But we have argued that the contribution of caregiving to this society is 
unimaginable. Well, we know what it is. It can be costed. And how much our health and social service system depends on it. We have to elevate our respect for caregiving. We've always had that perspective. Elevate our respect for caregiving by programs and policies and education and just recognition. And the pandemic has highlighted that even more you know, what caregivers have had to do. So we're just calling for let's bring let's bring more energy back to things people have been trying to pass, paid family leave that covers caregiving, consumer-directed programs that I'm sure you both are familiar with where older adults can pay relatives and friends, you know, to be their caregivers. And the thing that particularly has bothered me is that care people are penalized for stepping out of the workforce and stepping out of the workforce to provide care when you're failing to accumulate for your own social security when you retire so we're actually penalizing people penalizing their future self as older adults who might need care because of their duties they take on as a caregiver so there's legislation that would in fact have a certain amount of money on the record in your social security uh, account, not representing you didn't work, representing you did unpaid work, and we're gonna give you credit for that in the social security system. So there's a lot of things in each one of these arenas that we can do to encourage, facilitate the involvement in these really important roles. And that's just been highlighted in the pandemic. Yeah, you mentioned a lot about how the pandemic has changed how we see productive aging and the field of gerontology and older adults. And now just looking forward, what does the future hold for this field? And you mentioned a lot of interesting ideas such as technology integration, just to give an example. So yeah, just kind of take us a step back and looking at affected by the pandemic, affected by a lot of change in demographics and population and technology. Yeah, what will the future look like for our field? I think that, you know, we have learned a lot from the pandemic. And if we can come out of this with a vision that older adults, despite the rea- some of the physical realities of vulnerability, are not a big group of people, are not one heterogeneous group, there's a lot of capacity, and they're essential workers. I mean, I think that's my favorite takeaway. Now I say all the time, older adults are essential workers. And a colleague, um, when, when there was calls to isolate older adults so that the economy could recover, it's like, what? Older adults are the economy. I mean, just in terms of as consumers, as producers, the idea that older adults can be separated as a solution to things, I think we can challenge with all people's experience and by stories and what our older adults have done for families and communities during this time. In terms of other lessons, I'm broadening it now more to genealogical social work rather than just productive aging. We have learned about telehealth. We have learned about sink or swim with technology and older adults do it and they are, and many are loving it and they have new worlds open to them for their healthcare, for their social connection, for their education. And we ain't, we're not going back on that. And there's so many uh, wonderful things that we have learned. We've also learned 
there's people who need, and not just older adults, there's people who need hardware and software and internet access, and we're going to have a whole lot more resource development and implement dissemination around lessening the digital divide. Also with older adults, I think people have learned more about end of life, some hard lessons about end of life. And as gerontological social workers, my colleagues are spending more time with families and advanced care planning, you know, uh, talking about care and desires at end of life. That's a good thing. I think the greater appreciation of caregiving is some way that we're going to be able to take forward as well. Not just caregiving of older uh, people, but, but the care that older adults give to kids and grandkids during this crisis has been highlighted. So I think there are lots of lessons to go forward. We were talking a little bit ago about the village model. Villages are considered a community organization, a grassroots membership-based organization, older adults in a kind of a geographic area coming together to say, what can we do to help each other live well here? It, there's more than, I guess there's about 300 villages across the country now. They're in a collaboration, village-to-village -village network to help each other learn how to do this. But members in the organization work together for social events from different clubs and interest groups to happy hours and dinner outings, social connection, and also volunteer service. It's a volunteer first organization where how can we help each other when we need transportation, somebody's coming out of the hospital and needs some meals, or somebody's dog needs to be walked. We provide services to each other in this membership organization as well, and information and referral vetted services in a community we can help people connect to. So that's the village model. Great. Those are all the questions that we have. So thank you very much. To learn more about the Gerontological Society of America, visit geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging, cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research, and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org.